Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, if everybody would open their Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, last book of the Bible. We're going to part from the Route 66 sermon series for... Uh, just this morning, Revelation chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. Um, <clears throat> today is our annual State of the Church sermon. This is something I've been doing for the last three years. This is our, our third year. Um, we take the first Sunday of each year to assess the situation that the church of Jesus Christ finds itself in, in our world and culture at this time. Uh, not really thinking about new life individually, but certainly it's related to us, but just more, more broadly, the situation the church finds itself in. And our model is um, <clears throat> these letters to the seven churches that are in the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 2. Jesus speaks to these seven different churches, and so every year we're looking at one of these churches. So it's a seven-year sermon series, uh, one sermon per year. We started with um, Ephesus two years ago, Smyrna last year, the churches in those cities. And today we're looking at Jesus' words to the church in a city called Pergamum. Pergamum. Um, <clears throat> Pergamum is uh, in modern-day Turkey. So here you have a map of uh, modern day Turkey. It wasn't called Turkey at the time, but um, these kind of purple dots are the seven churches that are addressed in Revelation. So you can see them right here. And I know that's very, very small writing, but Pergamum is right here, right next to the Mediterranean Sea. The city no longer exists. Um, but what Jesus says <laughs> to this city is actually very relevant for our current day and age, very appropriate for this question of the state of the church. And it's relevant because of what we are hearing a lot about in, in our culture, and that is um, the coming persecution of Christians. So you, you may have heard about that yourself or read articles about that. It's captured in, in books like this one, Prepare living your life in an increasingly hostile culture. So a lot of people, a lot of observers are, are writing about this, expecting that life is going to be harder for Christians in the coming years. Now, some react to this and they say that it's kind of an overreaction, that this is, this is alarmist, um, that it's really not that bad, that the problem with Christians is they, they like to play the martyr um, that some Christians seem to even want persecution to happen so that um, they can play themselves as victims. That's, that's the accusation. And, you know, maybe in some cases that's true. Maybe. I mean, we shouldn't want there to be persecution. Sometimes it seems like some Christians do. So, so some, some say this is just an alarmist overreaction. But, but others say, no, that this is, this is a very real issue uh, that Christians should be concerned about. In fact, Pope Benedict back in 2012 said the current spiritual crisis that we're experiencing is the worst since the fall of the Roman Empire many, many centuries ago. 
there are many who, who say, Christians, get ready. One thing for sure is that persecution has been a very real phenomenon in the past for the church. You know, all you've got to do is read church history and even the Bible, and you'll see that that is indeed the case. That persecution is very real for some Christians in the world today throughout other countries. I think we heard about some beheadings of Christians even on Christmas Day and uh, overseas. Um, and persecution was very real for the saints in Pergamum that we're going to read about here in chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, please stand. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17 from this chapter. Again, it's the third church in this series of seven churches that Jesus is speaking to, kind of giving his assessment of this local congregation. <clears throat> and so he says this, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also... You have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Holy Spirit, would you please open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so, here's the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ giving his assessment of these seven churches. And there are three things that I want to point out from this passage. And the first thing is uh, the problem that Jesus sees in this church of Pergamum. The problem he sees as he assesses this local congregation. And the problem, I think, is pretty clear, and that is false teaching is present in Pergamum. That's the same problem, actually, that was the case in the church in Ephesus we heard about two years ago at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Here it shows up again in Pergamum. So, Apparently, false teaching is something that the church has to contend with. It's a, 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 a frequent occurrence. And it's not too surprising, really, when you know a little bit about the city of Pergamon, because the city of Pergamon was a, a city that was full of temples and shrines to, to false gods. There was a temple to Zeus, a temple to Dionysus, a temple to the goddess Athena, uh, people would come from all over the region to seek healing from a goddess named Asclepius. Um, uh, in this city was the primary center for emperor worship, so that was very common in this day, that, that the emperor or the, the, the president, the, the leader, the governor, should be worshipped 
as a god by the people. And so here we have this city Pergamum where, where all of this false teaching is, is going on. And uh, it, it seems to be why on two occasions in verse 13, Jesus says this is a place where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells at the end of verse 13. It's a satanic place with all of these temples to false gods. And as far as we know, this church that Jesus is speaking about is the only Christian church in that city. One Christian church surrounded by all of this false worship. And yet it doesn't seem to be an excuse for them because Jesus comes and says, this is something that I have against you guys. You hold to false teaching. First of all, verse 14, there are some in your church who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, we wish this text would unfold this a little more and tell us the precise nature of the false teaching, but um, the Old Testament reading that Eric read to us from Numbers 25 tells us a little bit about that. Um, if you might remember that text, it was a pretty brutal text about how Israel began to um, sacrifice to idols and was practicing sexual immorality. It was right there in Numbers 25, and God was so angry about that, he sought to put them to death. But if you turn to chapter 31, verse 16 in Numbers, you'll find that it was Balaam who enticed God's people to do those things. And that's what Jesus is referring to here in chapter 14. The teaching of Balaam who enticed the sons of Israel to engage in these two practices, eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality. So there seems to be some kind of teaching involving a kind of permissiveness about these two things, worshiping other gods and engaging in various forms of sexual immorality. It wasn't just the practice of that, it was, the, it was, it was a certain teaching about it, that the church was saying these things are okay. It's all right for you Christians to engage in this kind of behavior. But there's another... Uh, source of false teaching that is mentioned, and it is the Nicolaitans. That's from verse 15. Also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we just, frankly, just don't know much about the Nicolaitans. They were also mentioned in chapter 2, verse 6. They were present in Ephesus as well. But uh, the linking of these two things suggests that the Nicolaitans probably taught something similar to what Balaam was teaching Israel and what was described in Numbers 25. So we shouldn't be entirely surprised about this. Um, <clears throat> here's what Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 2. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And all throughout the, the New Testament, Jesus and Paul and Peter warn over and over again about the dangers of false teaching. And sometimes we kind of dismiss this because sometimes it's the people who are super heavy on doctrine and they're precise on everything and they're the ones who consider themselves kind of the global doctrine cops and they're going to come in and show everybody where they're wrong and sometimes there's kind of an overreaction. And because we may have met some people who were you know, super legalistic about doctrine, maybe we've kind of gone to the other extreme and we've ignored all the passages in the New Testament that say you better watch out because this is going to be an issue in the church. People bringing forth 
false doctrines. Now, just, just notice here the strong language that Jesus uses uh, about this at the beginning of verse 14. I have some things against you. Jesus says, I, I am against you, church, he is saying. Sometimes we'll hear people say Christians need to talk more about what they're for rather than what they're against. And yeah, okay, there's probably some truth there, but let's not overlook what Jesus is saying here. This is something I'm against, and it's not necessarily something you're doing. It's something you're teaching. There are truth claims that are being made. There are belief systems that you're embracing. This is more of an intellectual thing. It has to do with what you believe, and I'm against what you're teaching. I'm against what you're believing. But where does this all come from? I've already made reference here to verse 13. This is a place where Satan's throne is. It seems like the implication is that the source of false teaching is Satan himself. False teaching is a, is a satanic phenomenon in the church, which shouldn't surprise us because let's think of the very first example of false teaching. It's in the garden where Adam and Eve hear, you won't die if you eat the fruit. First false teaching in the history of the world. And who was that? It was Satan through the serpent denying what God had said and saying, no, you won't die. Do what you want. And then, how are the people to respond to this? We're noticing the strong language here. Jesus is against this. It comes from Satan. And then in verse 16, here's how you should respond to false teaching. Repent. Repent of this. Turn away from these false teachings. Flee from it as you would from any other sin. If not... Look at this warning. I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, that is not a reference to the second coming. What Jesus is saying there is, if you don't turn from your false teaching, I'm going to come in, intervene, and bring judgment upon this church. A church of Jesus Christ. Jesus will judge it for its false teaching. So, very strong language. This is the problem. The problem in Pergamum. They're lacking discernment. They have teachers that are saying things and people don't know that it's error or they're rationalizing it. I, I, I don't know. So you know, how does that apply to us today? I mean, one thing you might be saying is, okay, Bob, you're standing up there teaching. How do we know you're not a false teacher? <laughs> I mean, that, that would be you know, a, a legitimate question for you to ask. You know, James says, let not many of you become teachers. So, uh, yeah, there is stricter judgment for those who teach because of the dangers of false teaching. And I am not beyond falling into false teaching. Uh, you know, that, that's, that, that's possible, but I, I want you to know that there are some safeguards built in to protect me and Brian and others who teach from this pulpit uh, against that. One of the safeguards is, safeguards, safeguards is all of you who are an astute congregation and lovers of God's word and I know will come to me if something is taught from this pulpit that is out of line, inconsistent with the word of God. Um, you can hold your pastors accountable. Uh, we have a session here, a session of elders. The elders are, need to hold me accountable uh, as well. Uh, if I start going off the rails, they're, they're, I'm going to hear it from them. And let me encourage you elders who are sitting out there, I, I want to encourage you to do that, to confront me and challenge me if false teaching should ever proceed from this pulpit. Uh, I'm also held accountable to a presbytery because of the way our church government is set up. I'm accountable to other pastors in this area who could potentially bring me up on charges 
and defrock me if I were to teach and persist in the teaching of false teaching. Uh, we also have a, a confession of faith, which is maybe something we don't think about too much, but I want to suggest it's a, it's a huge blessing to have a confession of faith, a confession, a doctrinal statement that has been held by Presbyterian Reformed churches for five centuries, and it stood the test of time. And I have vowed to uphold the teaching of that confession. I have vowed to say that if I find myself out of accord with that, I will tell my elders and I'll tell the presbytery. And so there's these various safeguards in place to, to keep pastors from falling into false teaching. That's not saying it's impossible for it to happen, but there are safeguards. And I hope you're encouraged by that. So like, what, what kind of false teaching then should we be concerned about uh, today? We, we don't hear much about the teaching of Balaam or the Nicolaitans. I, I don't think there's any Nicolaitans here in Muncie, Yorktown that I know about. I don't think any of you have read any books lately by a Nicolaitan. I don't think any Nicolaitan has a podcast that you've been listening to lately, probably. But that doesn't mean there's not false teaching going on in, in the church. And you know, it takes many, many forms. There's something called the prosperity gospel where people are being told if they just believe and have strong enough faith, they'll be healed of all their diseases and they'll be rich and wealthy and happy all the time. That's false teaching. It's not what the Bible teaches. There's just kind of old-fashioned garden variety, run-of-the-mill liberalism that denies the supernatural, denies the existence of a spirit world, denies the resurrection of Jesus, says that everything we believe about the Bible is just an internal subjective thing. That's, that's false teaching. There's something called a social gospel, which says it's not so important whether you come to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. What's most important is that we all gather together and try to fix the problems we find in the world. That the church is about activism, not about conversion. Not as much about conversion. That, that's, that's false teaching. And, of course, what is mentioned here specifically regarding the Nicolaitans and Balaam is um, the practice of sexual immorality. So you don't have to look far to see false teaching regarding sexuality all over our culture. Any teaching that would seek to normalize or celebrate homosexual behavior, any teaching that would encourage people to find their self-identity primarily in their same-sex attraction, any teaching that would encourage people to transition from their biological sex to the other sex as if that's something that God affirms, any teaching like that that comes forth in the church is false teaching. That's not to say that people who struggle with those things are going to hell or have no place in the church. That's not what I'm saying. We love them. We welcome them. We want to embrace them. I'm talking about the teaching. I'm talking about churches. I'm talking about pastors that stand behind pulpits and declare that God has no concern whatsoever about these kinds of sexual immoralities. It's false teaching, and what Jesus is saying here again in verse 16, is that he's going to bring the sword one day against that kind of teaching. Now, I don't know when that's going to happen or how it will happen, but that's what Jesus is saying here. So that's, that's the problem here in Pergamum. False teaching, and there are various false teachings that we should be concerned about today. <clears throat> the second thing I want you to see is the persecution that takes place here in Pergamum. 
because Jesus offers an affirmation to this church. Let's not overlook this. He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. In other words, you, you have persevered through this. You haven't gone astray. You haven't denied your faith in Jesus. And what makes this so much more significant is that this happened in the days of Antipas, it says. Well, who is Antipas? We don't know much about him except that he's called a faithful witness and he was killed among those in the church. Antipas was, was martyred for his faith. We're not told exactly the circumstances surrounding this. It, it very well could have been because of the laws requiring emperor worship. Perhaps Antipas said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to bow down to the emperor. And he might have paid for that with his life. But Jesus here is commending the church. He's saying, in a time when it would have been a greater temptation for you to deny the faith, the days of Antipas, when people were getting killed for the faith, even in those days, you didn't deny the faith. You held on. You persevered. And Jesus says, I commend you for that. that, that that's, that's a great thing. In the midst of persecution, to persevere. Uh, we're hearing a lot about Pastor Wang Yi in, in Chengdu, China. And maybe you've heard, I think we prayed about it last week, actually, that he has been sentenced now to nine years in prison in, in China for his role as pastor in Chengdu. The charge has been state subversion. But he's been in prison for about a year, and now he's going to be in prison for another nine years. And all the reports are saying that Pastor Wang Yi is just as strong in his faith as he ever has been. He's not denying his faith. The temptation would be great to do that, wouldn't it? But, but this, by the Spirit of God, this man is, is strong and he's persevering and it's an inspirational thing. And so as we read about this, it's happened to Antipas, it's happening in China right now, it's happening in many places in the world. Well, so what might this look like for us? You know, how, how should we prepare if indeed persecution is coming? Because the temptation for all of us will be to deny our faith. I mean, you know, what, what would you do if somebody threatened jail time or execution to you or promised that that wouldn't happen to you if you just deny Jesus? Just say Jesus is not your Lord. Just say it and you won't die. What do you say? I mean, man, you know, that's, that's a temptation to deny, to deny the faith. I mean, I'm not beyond that temptation. That would be hard. But, but here's another temptation. The other temptation is to rise up in hatred and revenge. You know, to want to wanna get those people who are oppressing the church to allow our hearts to be filled with hate. Or the other extreme would be just to become fearful and suspicious and paranoid and to flee and run and hide from the world. <laughs> to see a persecutor around every corner. Uh, that would be the other temptation. So how should we respond to this? So I'm going to give some practical suggestions here that come from this book, which is very good. I would recommend it to you. It's called Free to Believe by a guy named Luke Goodrich. I think it was World Magazine's book of the year. Uh, very, very good. It's talking about freedom, uh, the, the topic of freedom of religion in our country with um, an examination of several court cases that have been going on over the years in, in our country. Uh, just showing how the courts are handling various religious freedom issues. So very, very good book. 
But he gives seven things, okay? This is, I'll go through these pretty briefly. Seven things that he suggests for Christians who are looking ahead to the possibility of persecution. First thing is this. Expect suffering. Expect it. Bible says we are sheep among wolves. Scripture says, Jesus says, you will be hated. Scripture says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon you. When you undergo persecution, don't be surprised by that, is what James is, is saying. Expect it. Expect it. It's, it's the normal experience for Christians throughout history, quite frankly. In, in America, we've been protected over the last couple hundred of years, praise God. But that is an aberration, actually. Throughout most of the world and most of history, Christians have been persecuted. So expect it. And in addition to that, rejoice when it comes. Wow, that's hard to do, right? But Luke 6.23, Jesus says, leap for joy when you are persecuted or hated for the sake of the gospel. Not because persecution is a good thing, not because it's something we want to seek out, but because it's an opportunity for us to declare our faith in Jesus. It's an opportunity for us to share in the sufferings of our Savior. Rejoice when suffering comes. Thirdly, fear God, not men. The best way to overcome your fear of men is to fear something more than men. And the one to fear is God, because according to Jesus... God is the one who can kill the body and the soul. Jesus says, don't feel the one, fear the one who can kill the body and not the soul. Fear the one in charge of them both, the body and the soul. And only God is, is that one. Fear him the most and you will fear men less. Fear God, not men. Strive for peace. Strive for peace. In other words, don't go looking for persecution. Don't go being belligerent and disrespectful and angry with your friends and family and on social media. If you look for persecution, you'll probably get it. The overall attitude should be a striving for peace. Submit to the governmental authorities as much as it depends upon you. Live peaceably with all, Paul says in the book of Romans. Continue doing good. Continue doing good rather than becoming discouraged about oppression or discrimination or persecution and then looking for revenge on those who are perpetrating this. Instead, serve, bless, encourage, let your light shine before others, let your righteousness be witnessed, let your humility and devotion to God be seen by all who would seek to persecute you. Continue doing good. Sixth, love your enemies. It doesn't mean you approve of what they do. It doesn't mean that you join in what they do if you're in disagreement with that. But the scripture does say that we are to do good to those who hate us. We are to bless them and not curse them. Love your enemies. That's something that can only happen by the power of God through prayer and by his spirit. Love your enemies. I mean, just think about loving those people who have put Pastor Wang Yi in prison. Loving those people who have shut down his church and shut down his seminary. I mean, that's something that can only happen, again, by the supernatural power of God. And then the last thing, care 
for one another. Second, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, as one member suffers, all do. We all suffer together because we are all part of one body. And under the threat of persecution, the fellowship of the saints is be going to come all the more precious to us. The community of the church is going to become all the more essential. This is the place where we should come to receive care and encouragement and love and support. As you come back from the world in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, you feel attacked, maligned, disrespected, dismissed because you're a Christian. You come here, come to us. Let us care for you and love you and encourage you and instruct you. That's going to be all the more important, I think, in the future years. So here's how Luke Goodrich sums this up. We are called not to win, but to be like Jesus, not to fear suffering, but to fear God, not to be surprised at hostility, but to expect it, not to complain when we lose, but to rejoice, not to lash out at our opponents, but to love them. We're called not to avoid losing at all costs, but to glorify God at all costs. A good summary of God's call upon us as his people. Jesus wins in the end. We know that. We can leave the victory in his hands. In the meantime, we're called to, to these things, as Luke Goodrich has reminded us, with ample support from Scripture. So that, that's the persecution in Pergamum. Let's move on to one last thing, and it's the promise. There's a promise here in verse 17. <clears throat> this promise is to the one who conquers. He who has in here, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers. That is, to, to the one who perseveres. To the one who doesn't deny the faith in the midst of persecution, in the midst of false teaching. To this person, two things are promised. One, the hidden manna. So what does that mean? Well, remember back in the Old Testament when Israel's wandering through the wilderness and God feeds them by providing manna for them. That's their sustenance. That's their strength. That's their food. And God provides it generously to them. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is this. When you are going through the wilderness of persecution, God himself will provide you an endless supply of spiritual nourishment and strength so that you may persevere and not deny your faith. That's the promise. God's going to give you what you need. You, you might say right now, I don't know, this terrifies me, this idea of being persecuted, and I, I don't know if I can handle it. Well, right now you probably couldn't handle it. But if you're in a position where you had to handle it, God would provide you, for what you need, with what you need. And in that moment, the Spirit of God will provide you with what you need. I mean, if, you, if you're a biker, you, you know what it's like to have um, one of those hydration packs. You know, you can put it on your back when you ride and, and you just have this little tube here and you just kind of suck the water out of that tube. And so while you're doing the work of riding, you can get this constant inflow of water from your hydration pack. Now you notice I don't have a hydration pack on right now. I, I don't need it. But on a bike riding a 20-mile ride, I, I might need it. And it would be there to provide me the water I would need in the midst of the work, so to speak. And that's the promise here. God's going to give manna. He's going to give nourishment. He's going to encourage you. He's going to bring scripture to your memory. He's going to send letters to you. He's going to have brothers and sisters come and encourage you and bless you and tell you not to give up. Keep going. Keep doing good. And you'll be sustained. 
But the other thing promised here in verse 17 is this white stone. I will give him a white stone. Now, there's a number of different interpretations of what the white stone is. I don't think anybody really knows what it is. It was used for many different purposes in, in this city in Pergamum. Sometimes it was used for jury members. They bring out their white stone to show that they find the defendant not guilty. It's like a symbol of acquittal. Uh, in some other cases, it was used as tickets to get into feasts and entertainment events. Um, others were rewarded white stones uh, as they have gained victory in some kind of an athletic event. So we don't really know what the white stone is. But the more important thing, I think, for us is that this is a stone, as you go on, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. A new name. A stone is going to be given that has, I believe what this is saying is a new name for you. That it's going to be your name. It's going to be a name that encapsulates all that God has done in your life to make you the person that he desires you to be on that last day. And there's going to be an inscription and you're going to see that. You know, to, today I think all of us have this longing, you know, to have our name up in light, so to speak. You know, we all want our name to be known, right? I mean, there, there's nothing worse than people who constantly forget your name. Um, you know, the, the show Cheers, it's a place where everybody knows your name. We hear that song and we think, oh, that is so nice, yeah. A place where I can go and everybody knows me and they call me by name. We want to be known. We want someone to know our name. It's like what... God is saying here is, look, the world might not ever know your name, but I do. I know your name. Because I have loved you from before the foundation of the world. And I have come into this world to die for you and to redeem you and to take you to myself. And I am going to finish the work that I started in you. And I am going to enable you to persevere to the end. And that day is going to come and I'm going to give you this stone and it's going to have your name inscribed on it and no one's going to really know it except the one who receives it this is just between you and God you want approval from the world the most important approval you need is from God your savior and you're going to have it Christian on that last day as you persevere to the end so that's the promise and I think that's what Jesus is saying here is take heart in the midst of persecution um, I will sustain you. So as we move into 2020, okay, we're looking into a new year, looking into a new decade. We don't have to go forth, you know, expecting the worst, expecting the sky to fall. But we also shouldn't have our head in the sand, ignoring the, the clues that are all around us about the changes that are taking place in, in the culture. Um, but we can enter into this with hope and not fear, with Love, not hate, with joy, not gloom. Because the promise here is to the one who conquers. What does Paul say in Romans 8? That all of us, God's people, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us, and neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything in all creation, no jail cell, no loss of your freedom, no loss of life can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus for you. And that is our strength and, and that is our hope for whatever the Lord has for us. And we can rejoice in that.
Let's pray. God, um, we look to you to sustain and help and strengthen us as your people. Father, help us to live godly lives among the pagans, as your word says. Give us humble hearts, but fearless hearts, Lord. Uh, Lord, help us to not deny your faith. Um, Lord, give us an eager anticipation for that day when we receive the white stone with our names written on it. And Father Jesus, we pray, please come quickly. And in the meantime, sustain us and equip us, Father, for whatever lies ahead. We pray these things in Jesus' name.